We are really uh, grateful that uh, John and Judith Mason are here with us today. John is going to be preaching for us. Uh, John and Judith Mason are central to the history of Emmanuel Church. Uh, John and Judith, uh, God used them to plant Christ Church, which meets on the Upper East Side, uh, I think about 20 years ago, if I've got that right. Um, and then uh, Christ Church established a congregation in this space uh, something around 10 or 11 years ago, and then five years ago that congregation turned into Emmanuel. And so John and Judith are, are kind of uh, a father and a mother uh, spiritually of Emmanuel. So we're so delighted that they're here from Sydney, Australia. And so, uh, John, uh, welcome you to the pulpit in just a few minutes. In the first place, let's read the Bible. Uh, Frederick. All right. We have a reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jim, for the invitation to be with you all this morning. It really is a rare privilege. Thank you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The surprising line with which Charles Dickens begins his tale of two cities. Some little while back, a New Yorker cartoonist portrayed Dickens on one side of the desk in his publisher's office with a publisher saying, I wish you would make up your mind 
Mr. Dickens. Was it the best of times or the worst of times? It could scarcely have been both. However, these opening words proved to be memorable for a novel on the French Revolution. Indeed, they are words that echo down through the ages and spell out the tensions people feel in every generation, the experience of good times, but the realities of injustice, evil, and death. In fact, they resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul in that reading we've heard from 2 Timothy this morning. The opening line reads, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. Paul's phrase here, in the last days, is a technical expression in the New Testament that speaks of the time between Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and his return. Paul is saying that throughout this whole time period, and we're in it, there'll be times of stress of one form or another. Now, Paul is not wholly negative, you'll be pleased to know. He isn't saying that there won't be times of religious revival, but he is saying that even in this era, when God's good news is transforming lives everywhere, there'll also be challenging times, especially for God's people. It's the reality of these changes, or rather the reality of these challenges, not the issue of timing, that is Paul's concern when he speaks about in the last days. In this last letter to his friend and student, Timothy, Paul urges him to be realistic about two things, the religion of the world and the faith inspired by God's word. Now these are words just as much for our age as they were for Timothy's. And if you'll allow me a little history, so important is this chapter that I preached on it when Christ Church launched this second location on February 7, 2010. Let me identify two themes. First, be realistic about the religion, the gods of this world. Second, be realistic about the revelation of God. The opening lines in verse 2 we find, the people will be lovers of themselves. And there's the key to what Paul is talking about. Paul is not an optimist who thinks that the world is going to get better and better as time goes on. On the contrary, he is saying that the decadence he saw around him in first century Roman society, as the dating we would give it, was typical of the way the world operates when it does not know God. And how right he is. But while we have made huge advances in science and technology and enjoy one of the highest standards of the living, the highest standards of living that the world has ever known, we can't say that the world has advanced morally. We're constantly aware of drug and alcohol abuse, corruption and violence, sex trafficking, 
terrorism and wars. It's hardly a world of justice and peace. And Paul goes to the heart of the problem. He tells us we have forgotten the real meaning of love. People will be lovers of themselves, he says, lovers of money. Let's think about this. The commands to love distinguish us from the animal world. The two commands that we find etched in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God, love your neighbour, lie at the heart of what it means to be human. But Paul is saying, in these last days, people will ignore these commands. They won't even begin to think about them. Gone is the view of our post-Christian world of previous generations that there is a creator God and an objective moral order to the universe. These days, everyone has their own truth. You've got your truth and I've got mine. Children back in the 90s were taught at school, the most important person is me, in capital letters. Gone went the notion of neighbour love. So in Paul's words, we live in a world where people, where people are lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of anything but God and one's neighbour. Gone was the whole notion that love is actually about the willingness to serve the needs, the best interests of others. And so we have self-preoccupation, self-assertion, self-importance. We have the pursuit of goods, materialism, the pursuit of amusement, hedonism. These things have become our gods, the gods of the world around us. The love that God wants us to invest in him and in other people has been turned inside out. We could translate Paul's words here, they love nothing but money and self. Furthermore, this focus on self has moral consequences. People are proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. Human personalities become ugly and there's discord in human relationships. And Paul gives us a clue as to where this antisocial behaviour begins. He speaks of disobedience to parents without love. And that word love there is the word for family love. So Paul is saying there's no filial respect or emotional warmth for parents as time goes on. And when children leave home, they often create more heartbreak and destruction. They are unforgiving. They have an implacable anger and deep resentment. They are slanderous, literally devils. And like the devil, they like to speak evil of everyone. They're without self-control. There's a recklessness about them. No moral restraint 
goodness holds no attraction for them. They are thoughtless of others, self-centered, only focused on their own interests. And so they are treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I don't want to be negative this morning. <laughs> but this is the description of men and women between Jesus' resurrection and the day of his return. Tough words, but true. And did you notice the unexpected, unexpected twist here? God, or at least religion, may feature in the lives of these self-centered people. Paul speaks of them, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. And his words to Timothy in the next, next sentence underline the point further. Avoid them. I'm sure you begin to see what he's saying. He's saying that in every age there will be charlatans peddling false religion. You'll find them in society at large and even within the church. These people could be quite charming and not least in their appeal to the vulnerable. They are like the magicians of Egypt, Paul goes on to say, Janus and the Ambrus, who tried to impersonate the miracles of Moses, intent on sabotaging the work of God through the ministry of Moses. The only good thing that Paul can say about them is that their influence is short-lived. They will not get very far, as he says in verse 9, because their folly will become clear to everyone. Give them enough rope and they will hang themselves. Nothing secure and lasting can ever be built on lies. And this is certainly true of humanity and humanly invented religion, the human establishment of gods, the gods of the, that they worship. People at first are deceived but in time, the lie is exposed. And those who were impacted will either look for the truth or simply drift away, thoroughly discouraged. During this period of the last days, Paul is saying, all forms of religion and worldviews will be found. Theologies will even develop that may have the form of orthodoxy at the beginning but as time goes on, their true nature will become more and more evident because they've gone off in a tangent. Life won't be easy for God's people who are faithful because they will need to be alert to error and protect the truth. You need to be ready to counteract false ideas, Paul says. Keep your head, for alongside the good in God's good creation, evil is at work, intent on doing its damnedest. Where religion and worldviews are false, there are subtle but nasty consequences in people's lives. Devotion to self, devotion to money, devotion to pleasure, these are the gods 
of the human age. And sadly, it happens in families, in lonely people, and even in churches where people might want to say they want to serve, but all they want to do is to serve their own interests. It was Paul's world, it's our world. It's the world of the last days. So how are we to respond? Let's look for a positive note in all of this. Paul says, be realistic about the revelation of God. Look at verse 10. As he writes personally to, to Timothy, you know my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, what befell me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. There aren't too many heroes these days. We have celebrities and influencers, not heroes. Heroes are people who have achieved something because of their integ integrity and strength of character. Celebrities and influencers are admired by the crowd for the present, but when you've had your fill of them, it's easy to be cynical, especially if we reckon they're on the make. Don't be like that, says Paul. Look to the example that I've sought to set. Examine my life and you'll find not just words, but character, character that has been shaped not just by God's word, but by adversity. The world is full of charm and glamorous smiles, but where the teachings and, and morality prompted more by the ideas of the religion of the world as opposed to God's word. But don't give up respecting people who have listened to God's word and who have persevered in the faith. People who have endured the tough times and have grown stronger in their love of God and their commitment to his people and a true love for people in the wider community to rescue them from their lostness and restore them into a right relationship with God. So Paul goes on to speak of the collision of the world of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. We're not to be taken by surprise by these things, says Paul, but we should never, ever give up. What then will ensure that we keep our, firm, our feet firmly on the ground and our eyes on Christ? Hold on to the Bible. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul urges Timothy to remember what he was taught as he grew up. A little side note there for parents. 
Back in chapter 1, Paul had, had spoken of uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. Paul clearly held those two women in great respect, not least because they had taught Timothy the Bible from childhood. And Paul really seems to verge on the sentimental here. It's as though he's saying, Timothy, I want you to value that Bible that your mother gave you. You've had access to the Bible from a very early age. What a marvelous privilege. Treasure that book. There's no other book like it. It's inspired. Not so much inspiring, it is that, but it's truly inspired. And the original word inspired here is literally breathed out. It carries the idea, well, sorry, I'll just restate that. We use the word inspiration in a number of ways. We speak of a writer or a composer as being inspired. But that's different from what Paul is saying here. He is saying that God is the author of this particular piece of writing from Genesis through Revelation. God supernaturally breathed out his thoughts into the minds of the writers, Paul is saying, enabling them to write his words, God's words. So the Bible is not God's ideas expressed in human words, nor is it human ideas enhanced by God's assistance. Rather, it is God's ideas expressed in God's words. God's ideas expressed in God's words. The best analogy I can think of this is the incarnation. When Jesus was born, the Holy Spirit had come upon a fallible human being, Mary. And the Spirit had so miraculously worked within her that the baby Mary gave birth to was 100% human and 100% divine. The Word made flesh. So what Paul is saying here about the Scripture is much the same. The Holy Spirit has come upon fallible human authors and so acted upon their minds and personalities that the product of their writing is 100% human and 100% divine. The word made legible. The personalities of each of these writers are important. They weren't human keyboards putting God's words into print. God used their personalities, but as someone has said, he did so in the way that an artist uses colors and composition to paint a particular scene. The colors give expression and the composition meaning to the artist's creation. This is why we have such diversity of writing in the scriptures, both in form and in style. There's narrative and history, parable and poetry. There's the simple Greek of Mark and the more complex writing of Luke the letter to the Hebrews, and first Peter. It's a miracle, yes. 
And if you want me to defend this, I would point to Paul's claim here, all scriptures inspired by God. And you'll say, oh, John Mason, you're defending scripture from scripture. Can't do that kind of thing. But if the Bible is God-breathed, there cannot be any higher authority by which to make this statement. We also have Jesus' own testimony. He regularly quoted the scripture, saying it is the word of God. There's also the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We believe it to be authoritative because as we read the scriptures, we experience its unique truth and power in our lives. That's what the scripture is. God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. And as the word of God, it gives us exclusive information about God, about our world, and specifically, as Paul says here, about salvation, making us wise unto salvation. It can also educate us, prepare us for godly living. Notice that it doesn't contain exhaustive truth, but what it contains is sufficient for salvation and for godly living. We don't need to add to it. In fact, it would be totally wrong to add to it. Paul reminds us that we live in a world that prefers to invent its own religion, have its own gods. But our only real hope, as Paul is saying here, for meaning and life is to turn to God's written self-revelation that we find in the scriptures. Genesis through Revelation. In the best of times and in the worst of times, human resources will never satisfy our thirst for life in all of its fullness and joy. Our only hope is to, is to depend on the resources of the living God that we find in his inspired word. So friends, what are we seeing? God not only exists, he is a speaking God, having made us in his image to know him and to enjoy him forever. He has spoken into our world through both his word and then supremely, of course, through his own son, the word who became flesh. God wants to move us from knowing that he exists, from knowing about him, to knowing him personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we preach and teach the scriptures. They are the key. They are God's power at work in our lives. The power of God's word. Don't stop reading it. Hang on to it. Treasure it. Read it. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. Never give up. It's God's speaking to us powerfully to touch and transform our lives. Amen.
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.